All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 55, for October 2023. The Supremes, four members of Supreme Courts. National Historic Landmark, an Arboretum, a Sculpture Garden, a Nature Preserve, and an Active Cemetery in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It opened in 1836 and remains a popular visiting spot for tens of thousands of visitors every year. Its sister cemetery, Laurel Hill West, located across the Schuylkill River in Balakinwood, was founded in 1869. It has a history and a population of its own. I am Joe Lex, a retired professor of emergency medicine at Temple University in Philadelphia, volunteer tour guide at Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West, and volunteer podcaster. Robert Cooper Greer was selected for the United States Supreme Court in 1846 to replace another justice who had died 841 days before the longest gap in the history of the court. He served for nearly a quarter century and he voted on many key decisions including Dred Scott versus Sanford. George Sharswood was the first dean of the University of Pennsylvania School of Law. While he served as Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, he made a decision which probably delayed women's rights to vote in Pennsylvania by more than 40 years. James Tyndale Mitchell was also a Chief Justice. He was a superb lawyer and judge, but may be remembered more for his giant collections of autographs and portraits of famous people, considered the finest of his day. And William Irwin Schaefer spent two years as State Attorney General before he became an Associate Judge on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. One of his decisions delayed Sunday baseball in Philadelphia by many years. Greer and Schaefer are buried at Laurel Hill West, Sharswood and Mitchell at Laurel Hill East. They are the subjects for All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories number 55 for October 2023, The Supremes. When Laurel Hill East founder John J. Smith and his partners decided that the cemetery was filling up too fast and needed to expand, 
They looked across the Schuylkill River into Montgomery County to a couple of farms on a bluff a mile or so upstream. In 1869, they purchased 88 acres from farmer Perry Anderson and then another 17 acres in 1870. In addition to a 225-foot bluff, the property was protected by two ravines to the north and the south. The first burial started to take place in 1870 in what we now know as the Washington, Montgomery, River, and Marion sections. Much like at Laurel Hill East, Smith and his partners recognized the publicity value of what we might call celebrity corpses, people whose names would attract others to be buried nearby. Recently retired Supreme Court Associate Justice Robert Cooper Greer had stepped down from his position on the court in January of 1870 and died less than 10 months later. His wife, Isabella, purchased a prime bit of property in the river section, easily accessible from the walking path. And Laurel Hill West had its first celebrity burial. But unless you are a student of the United States Supreme Court, you've probably never heard of Robert C. Greer. Don't feel bad. I didn't know about him either until I took my first tour at West a few years ago. He was not a great orator. He did not have an outstanding legal mind. In fact, he kind of fell into being a member of the court by accident. But once he was there, he stayed for 24 years. Robert C. Greer was born in Cumberland County, Pennsylvania, to Elizabeth Cooper Greer and Isaac Greer, a Presbyterian minister and school teacher who home-tutored him until he entered Dickinson College. Greer graduated from Dickinson in only one year and received his B.A. in 1812 at age 18. He remained as an instructor at Dickinson until he took a position at a school run by his father. When his father died in 1815, Robert took over as headmaster. While he was a teacher at Dickinson College, Greer read law on his own and he passed the bar in 1817. He entered private practice in Bloomsburg, Pennsylvania until 1818 and then in Danville, Pennsylvania until 1833. In 1829, Greer married Isabel Rose, 1807-1886. She was the daughter of a wealthy Scottish immigrant who'd immigrated to America in 1794. Greer was a Jacksonian Democrat, a group that sought to broaden the public's participation in government. Jacksonian democracy involved the belief that the people are sovereign, that their will is absolute, and that the majority rules. Jacksonians demanded elected, not appointed judges. They rewrote many state constitutions to reflect the new values. In national terms, they favored geographical expansionism and justified it in terms of manifest destiny. But there was usually a consensus among both Jacksonians and their rival Whigs to avoid battles over slavery. In 1833, Greer was rewarded with a patronage appointment to a judgeship on the Pennsylvania State District Court for Allegheny County, a seat that was newly created for him. So not only was he not elected, he was appointed to a seat that had not existed until he came along. He served there for 13 years, and he developed a reputation for competence. 
In April of 1844, during the presidency of John Tyler, Associate Justice of the United States Supreme Court Henry Baldwin died in Philadelphia. Tyler twice attempted to fill the vacancy, but both Edward King and John M. Reed were rejected by the United States Senate. King, a judge of the Philadelphia Court of Common Appeals, is interred in Section G of Laurel Hill East. Reed, another Philadelphian, is interred at Christchurch Burial Ground in Center City. Tyler left office without the position filled, and when James K. Polk became president in March 1845, he nominated George Washington Woodward, yet another Pennsylvanian. The Senate rejected Woodward. The position was now offered to other men, including future President James Buchanan, who turned it down. Finally, on 3 August 1846, President Polk nominated Robert C. Greer, whom the Senate unanimously confirmed the following day. He was sworn into office on 10 August 1846. There had been an 841-day gap between the death of Henry Baldwin and Robert Greer's swearing in. This is still the longest vacancy in the history of the United States Supreme Court. Greer's salary, $6,000 a year. That's roughly equivalent to $188,000 a year today. At this time, under the original Judiciary Act of 1789 and subsequent acts, the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States had the responsibility of writing circuit and personally hearing both appeals and trials in the circuit courts, in addition to their caseload back in the Capitol. One case that Greer heard was United States versus Kastner Hanway in 1851. Congress had passed the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850, which permitted owners of enslaved people or their agents to pursue fugitive slaves and required federal officials to aid in the recapture of the alleged slaves. Those who aided an escaping slave could face six months imprisonment and a $1,000 fine. In 1849, Edward Gorsuch, who farmed in Moncton, Maryland, owned 12 slaves. Gorsuch had a habit of freeing some of his slaves when they reached the age of 28, and then he offered them paid seasonal work after that, and he never sold anyone downriver into the Deep South. Christiana, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a free state, is 20 miles north of the Maryland border. It had been settled by numerous free blacks. When four of Gorsuch's elder male slaves went missing, he assumed they had headed to Christiana. Gorsuch traveled to Philadelphia and obtained a federal warrant to capture his escaped slaves. Shortly after midnight, on 11 September 1846, the Gorsuch party set out on a raid. They went to the home of escaped slave William Parker, Although it is unclear who fired first, shots were fired from both sides. Two white locals, Elijah Lewis and Kastner Hanway, refused to arrest or capture anyone, despite being told they were breaking federal law. Edward Gorsuch confronted his slave Samuel Thompson, who clubbed him to the ground 
where he was fatally shot many times. Edward Gorsuch's son, Thomas, and Thomas's schoolmate, John Wilkes Booth, swore vengeance for Edward's death. In the immediate aftermath, Gorsuch's escaped slaves made it to Canada. On 14 November 1851, the Grand Jury of the United States District Court, Philadelphia, returned true bills of indictment for treason against 41 people, five white men, with Casper Hanway's name at the top of the list, and 36 blacks, both slaves and freedmen. Hanway was the first to be tried. He went before Supreme Court Justice Greer and U.S. District Court Judge John Kinsink Kane, father of physician and Arctic explorer Elijah Kent Kane. Kane is interred in the Peace Section at Laurel Hill East. Hanway was acquitted by the jury after 15 minutes of deliberation, and the prosecution withdrew the other charges after the defense pointed out the absurdity of trying a group of poorly armed Quaker farmers for levying war against the United States. Although Hanway and the others were found not guilty, Greer uttered harsh words against abolitionists. He described them as infuriated fanatics and unprincipled demagogues who denounced the Constitution, the laws, and the Bible. Another case that came before Greer was that of the Wheeling, Virginia Suspension Bridge. This is several years before West Virginia seceded from Virginia over the slavery issue. The bridge had opened a great fanfare in 1849. It carried the National Road, also known as the Cumberland Road. Now it's U.S. 40. It carried it over the east channel of the Ohio River and onto Wheeling Island. With a 1,010-foot main span, it was for many years the longest bridge of its type in the world. Its architect was Charles Ellett, Jr., 1810 to 1862, who's buried in Section C at Laurel Hill East after he died from a wound he received as leader of the Ram Fleet at the Battle of Memphis. With a 1,010-foot main span, it was for many years the longest bridge of its type in the world. As Wheeling celebrated its completion, the industrialists of neighboring western Pennsylvania were quietly plotting the bridge's destruction. These bridge opponents filed an original proceeding directly with the U.S. Supreme Court to abate the bridge as a public nuisance because it obstructed passage of large steamboats. It thereby and unconstitutionally impeded interstate commerce, they argued, by preventing those boats from traveling further upstream to serve Pittsburgh and other Pennsylvania communities. Pennsylvania's lawyer, Edwin M. Stanton, who was later President Lincoln's Secretary of War, told the court, the injury occasioned by this obstruction is deep and lasting. The opinion of the Supreme Court was delivered in May of 1852. The majority opinion stated that the bridge could remain if it could be raised to an elevation of 111 feet above low water and maintained at that height for a distance of 300 feet so the steamboats with the tall stacks could pass underneath. The owners of the bridge were given 10 months to comply with the order. This essentially amounted to a destruction order since it was impossible to raise the structure. Two years later, 
the United States House of Representatives Judiciary Committee investigated Greer's conduct in connection with Pennsylvania versus Wheeling. On 13 July 1854, Zedekiah Kidwell, a representative from Virginia, rose from his seat in the House of Representatives and announced, I hold in my hand a very important memorial petition which I ask the unanimous consent of the House to allow me to present for the purpose of reference to the Judiciary Committee. It is a memorial of the Wheeling and Belmont Bridge Company asking for an investigation of the charges preferred against the Honorable R.C. Greer, one of the justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. The Bridge Company claimed that Greer, one, solicited a bribe from their agents, two, leaked the opinion of the Supreme Court early in order to favor the other party, Pennsylvania, and three, willfully disregarded the law in considering an application for injunction. Ultimately, the House Judiciary Committee issued a report dismissing the allegations leveled against Greer, stating that Greer, quote, is entirely and absolutely exonerated and freed from the charges preferred against him. There is absolutely nothing which can or will impair his reputation as a judge or an upright and honest man, end quote. The committee's report was authored by Hendrick B. Wright, a fellow graduate of Dickinson College. To this day, it is really not clear whether Greer was guilty of any of the allegations leveled against him. His case was dismissed before the investigation actually started. But the case for which Greer can never be forgotten or forgiven is Dred Scott versus Sandford. It is generally considered today to have been the worst decision ever made by the United States Supreme Court. And Greer was one of two Northerners to side with Chief Justice Roger Tawney's decision. This story is complex. Please bear with me. An African man named Sam was born into slavery in 1795 in Southampton County, Virginia. Sam's owner, Mr. Peter Blow migrated to Alabama in 1819 and to Missouri in 1827. Mr. Blow took Sam with him to St. Louis, where, under the 1820 Compromise, which let Missouri enter the Union, slavery was permitted. After four years in St. Louis, Mr. Blow died. And in 1833, Blow's daughter sold Sam to Dr. John Emerson an assistant surgeon in the United States Army. A year later, Emerson was transferred to Fort Armstrong in Rock Island, Illinois, a free state since its admission to the Union in 1818. From there, with his slave, who had changed his name to Dred Scott along the way, he went to Fort Snelling, now Minneapolis. Then it was part of the Wisconsin Territory, which was free under the Missouri Compromise. In 1836, the year of Laurel Hill East's founding, Dr. Emerson bought an enslaved woman named Harriet, who Dred Scott married. In 1838, Emerson returned to St. Louis late in the year. Dred and Harriet's first daughter, Eliza, was born on the steamship Gypsy as they were traveling back to Missouri. 
When Emerson died a short time later, he left his slaves to his widow, Mrs. Irene Sanford Emerson, whom he had married only the year before. Now, Mrs. Emerson rented out her chattel to neighbors who needed servants. In the mid-1840s, when she moved to New York, Dred and Harriet stayed behind under the charge of the two sons of Scott's original owner, Henry and Taylor Blow. I told you this was complex. And in the meantime, Dred and Harriet Scott had a second daughter, whom they named Lizzie. Now, Henry Blow was in his 30s. He was a lawyer and a businessman of some wealth and prominence. He was head of a railroad, an active member of the Whig Party, which was beginning to be known as an opponent of the extension of slavery. Later, he did become a Republican. Blow wanted Dred Scott to be his test case and have him declared free, since he had lived for several years in states where slavery was not recognized. Dred Scott himself, an illiterate, uneducated man in his mid-40s, was only vaguely aware of the implications, but he did know that he wanted himself and his family to be free. So he made his mark on the necessary papers, and the lawsuit was on. The widow Emerson had no desire to own slaves, but she never submitted proper paperwork for manumission. When the case was listed formally, it was as Scott, a man of color, versus Emerson. The lawyers for Dred Scott argued that his five-year sojourn on free soil had ended his bondage. The lower court ruled in Scott's favor. But what people wanted was a decision from a higher court that would stand the test of time and be a national decision, establish a national standard. The Missouri Supreme Court reversed the lower court, and it held that state law still applied and that Scott, as a resident of Missouri, must remain a slave. By now, it was 1852, and the case had been going on for six years. Scott remained under nominal control of the county sheriff, who hired him out here or there for $5 a month. But he really knew nothing of what was happening as far as his possible freedom. People decided that the only way to get an answer was through a ruling from the Supreme Court. For 20 years, the Tawny Court had avoided the slavery question. The Constitution gave the states control over slavery within their borders. Although he was never a slaveholder, Tawny was a Southerner, and he was proud of his Southern beliefs. He was ready and willing to shake things up. He could have avoided the inevitable controversy by simply declaring... This is a state-based case. The Supreme Court has no jurisdiction to render a ruling. Now, in the meantime, to confuse matters even more, Mrs. Emerson transferred ownership of the Scots to her brother, John Sanford. And when the case appeared before the United States Supreme Court, it was as Dred Scott versus Sandford. There was a D, an extra D put in there, a glaring spelling error, which has never been repaired. The case is against Sandford, and yet in the body of the literature for the case, it talks about Sandford. In March of 1857, two days after James Buchanan, a Pennsylvania Democrat who strongly believed in states' rights, was sworn in as president, 
Chief Justice Roger Taney, only days from his 80th birthday, read his decision which changed American history. He began the court's opinion with what he saw as the core issue in the case, not whether slavery was legal, but whether or not black people could possess federal citizenship under the U.S. Constitution. From his decision. The question is simply this. Can a Negro whose ancestors were imported into this country and sold as slaves become a member of the political community formed and brought into existence by the Constitution of the United States and as such become entitled to all of the rights and privileges and immunities guaranteed by that instrument to the citizen? By a vote of 7 to 2, the court determined that a Negro could not be a citizen and therefore had no rights to bring a case up before the court. Getting back to Tawney's decision. We think that they, black people, are not included and were not intended to be included under the word citizens in the Constitution and can therefore claim none of the rights and privileges which that instrument provides for and secures to citizens of the United States. On the contrary, they were at that time considered as a subordinate and inferior class of beings who had been subjugated by the dominant race, and whether emancipated or not, yet remained subject to their authority, and had no rights or privileges, but such as those who held the power and the government might choose to grant them. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, and among them is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. More from Tawny. The general words above quoted would seem to embrace the whole human family. And if they were used in a similar instrument at this day, would be so understood. But it is too clear for dispute that the enslaved African race were not intended to be included and formed no part of the people who framed and adopted this declaration. For if the language, as understood in that day, would embrace them, the conduct of the distinguished men who framed the Declaration of Independence would have been utterly and flagrantly inconsistent with the principles they asserted. And instead of the sympathy of mankind, which they so confidently appealed, they would have deserved and received universal rebuke and reprobation. Tawney's opinion continued beyond the scope of the case about one man's freedom and one man's qualifications for citizenship. Now, the right of property in a slave is distinctly and expressly affirmed in the Constitution. Upon these considerations, it is the opinion of the court that the act of Congress which prohibited a citizen from holding and owning property of this kind Notice the word property of this kind in the territory of the United States north of the 3630 latitude line therein mentioned is not warranted by the Constitution and is therefore 
void. Tawney had just declared the Missouri Compromise to be illegal. This sent shockwaves flying across the country. In his separate opinion, Justice Greer concurred in full with Tawney's majority opinion. Greer initially had discouraged such a broad ruling. He claimed that the court should restrict itself after ruling on Scott's status as a non-citizen and stop. But Associate Justice John Catron wrote to President-elect James Buchanan and asked him to lobby his friend Greer for the broader opinion. Buchanan happily agreed, and he exchanged a series of letters with Greer, persuading the justice. In his separate opinion, Judge Greer wrote that he concurred with the opinion of the court, as delivered by the Chief Justice, that the Act of Congress of 6 March 1820 is unconstitutional and void, and that assuming the facts as stated in the opinion, the plaintiff cannot sue as a citizen of Missouri in the courts of the United States. This was only the second time in the 80-year history of the country that the Supreme Court had overruled Congress. The first time had been in Marbury versus Madison in 1803. Plus, Greer had leaked the decision of Dred Scott early to President-elect James Buchanan. In his inaugural address, Buchanan declared the issue of slavery in the territories would be, quote, speedily and finally settled by the Supreme Court. And his prediction became true two days after he was inaugurated. So what happened to Dred Scott? Shortly after the decision was made, John Sanford died. His sister had remarried to an abolitionist who assumed ownership of the Scott family and manumitted them on 26 May 1857, 11 years after Scott began proceedings and two months after the Supreme Court decision. On 17 September 1858, Dred Scott died in St. Louis, Missouri. He had been a free man for 479 days. And remember, this is still several years before the Civil War started. Greer discontinued circuit writing in 1862. In 1863, he wrote the opinion on the prize cases, which declared that Lincoln's blockade of southern ports was constitutional. In the moments leading up to the Civil War, President Lincoln, the politician, refused to ask Congress to officially declare war. Doing so, Lincoln believed, would recognize the Confederate States of America as an independent nation and therefore imply the dissolution of the Union, the very thing he was trying to avoid. But as Commander-in-Chief, Lincoln acted as if war had been declared and issued blockades of southern ports that helped cripple the Confederate cause. Opponents of Lincoln's maneuvers saw the blockades as pure piracy, since there had been no official call for war. Supporters argued for war in fact, not in words, and justified the blockade and the capture of southern vessels. Greer was a strong supporter of the Union. In his majority opinion, Greer supported Lincoln. He wrote, A civil war is never solemnly declared. It becomes such by its accidents. 
the number, power, and organization of the persons who originate and carry it on. Although Congress did not proclaim a state of war existed, thought Greer, its actual existence is a fact in our domestic history which the court is bound to notice and to know. Thus, by citing the power that the Constitution confers on the President to use the military to protect the Union, Greer upheld Lincoln's tactics. Greer's only son, Dr. William Potter Greer, became a Civil War Union Army surgeon in 1862. But on 28 January 1866, he was only 28 years old, Dr. Greer was killed in the explosion of the steamer SS Miami on the Arkansas River, just a few miles above the town of Napoleon, Arkansas. The accidental associate justice Robert Cooper Greer served through the tenure of eight presidents. Though he had previously attended every single session during his years as an associate justice, he was noted to be a muscular man, more than six feet tall. A series of strokes after 1867 reduced his participation to almost nothing, and he finally heeded the pleas of others for his retirement to take place on 31 January 1870. When he announced this intention in December of 1869, President Ulysses S. Grant was heavily lobbied to nominate former Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. Stanton was nominated. He was confirmed by the United States Senate on 20 December 1869. But he died just four days later, and he never served on the court. After Greer retired, Grant nominated Pennsylvanian William Strong, to succeed him. You will note that everyone I have talked about holding or being nominated to this seat was a Pennsylvanian. Robert Cooper Greer died in Philadelphia on 25 September, less than 10 months after he retired. He was 76 years old. His Scipio-type grave marker has been altered over the years. 19th century photographs in the archives show that there was an iron fence around the plot and what looked to be a large coffin was on top of the marker. We have no record of when those items disappeared. They might have been lost in the fire back around the turn of the 20th century. Nonetheless, what's remaining is an impressive marker. His next-door neighbor is entomologist and ornithologist John Lawrence LeCant, whom I talked about in All Bones Considered number 22, The Birds and the Bees. LeCant was Greer's son-in-law. He had married Robert and Isabella's daughter, Helen Greer. First of all, if you like the podcast, please leave a review, especially at Apple Podcast. Tell your friends about it. Try and help me get a few more listeners for this. I'm pretty happy with the way things are going. Believe it or not, this, this podcast has been downloaded more than 37,000 times. That's not too bad. It's really not, but let's see if we can do something better. October, that is when the cemeteries shine. There's no better time or place to spend a couple of hours and learn about our occupants from one of our excellent volunteer tour guides. And don't forget, you can always arrange a private tour for your family or your group. If you like, you can even request me as your guide. I am certified at both cemeteries. Go to laurelhillphl.com events 
and look for arranging your own tour. Will you hear this lineup we've got for October? It starts with one on October 1st at Laurel Hill East. It's called Sinners and Scandals. And it is Tom Keels doing what he does best, telling stories about less than pure spirits who are buried at Laurel Hill East. I think he's going to concentrate only in the south section this year, which is a real treat. Because once we go to south, that's an area that I admit I don't know that well as far as tours. I always learn things when we go on tours in the south. Then on October 13th is the big fundraiser of the year. That is the Gravedigger's Ball. I do not know whether tickets are still available as you are listening to this. It's at Memorial Hall this year, and there are so many Laurel Hill connections at Memorial Hall, it's not even funny. The builder is buried there. The guy who bought the statues out in front is buried there. The guy who built the miniature version of the Centennial that's in the basement at uh, Memorial Hall is buried at Laurel Hill East. The sculptor for the George Meade statue outside is buried at Laurel Hill West. Lots of connections. Plus, it's just fun to go to the Please Touch Museum. Check out the website for that. Other tours coming up. Hotspots and Storied Plots, Saturday, September 14th at 10 a.m. Pat Silverman is going to be your guide for that. Darkly Departed, Sunday, October 15th, from 10 a.m. until noon. That is at Laurel Hill West with Sarah Hamill. I make it a habit to never miss any tour given by Sarah Hamill because I always learn so much. And then, when you're finished at West, head over to East in the afternoon of Sunday, October 15th. And there, Thomas Jefferson himself, Bill Barker, who is the Jefferson interpreter at Monticello, but who is a Philadelphian, has multiple family members buried at East, and who has studied Thomas Jefferson extensively, will give you his tour on the worlds of Thomas Jefferson. So that's west in the morning from 10 until noon, and then east in the afternoon from 1 until 3. Laurel Hill East Fall Fun Day, Saturday, October 21st at noon until 3. Family-friendly day, lots of activities, costumes are encouraged. There's a fall foliage tour of Laurel Hill East on the 22nd from 10 a.m. until noon at Laurel Hill East. And then in the afternoon at East, another special tour, the Edgar Allan Poe Connections. This is from Russ Dodge. He's going to continue where he left off last year. He gave a two-hour tour last year of Poe Connections and said, well, I've got enough for another two hours. So I guess that's what we're going to hear this year. There's a Hotspots tour, introductory tour, on Friday, October 27th at Laurel Hill East from 10 until noon. That's on a Friday, and Sarah Hamill will be your guide for that. And then the piece de resistance, the thing that we all look forward to. And this year, the Soul Crawl, the annual flashlight tours, nighttime history tours at Laurel Hill East are with a full moon. Friday, October 27th, Saturday, October 28th. Let me tell you how this works. If you look at the time, it says 7 p.m. until 10 p.m. That might be a little misleading. The first tour will take off pretty much when we've got 20 or 25 people. We have 
couple of dozen guides. They all come in. We all come in. And then as a group of 20 gets together, a guide takes that group off, and the next guide waits for another group of 20. Uh, that means the last group may not go off until 8 and finish at 10. The tour itself is not from 7 p.m. until 10 p.m. Most of the guides are going to give you a two-hour tour. I am the last person off on both Friday night and Saturday night, sometime between 7.30 and 8. I've been doing that for the last couple of years, waiting to see if people show up in wheelchairs, in scooters, in, with strollers for kids, because the tour that I give is only on paved path. No stairs, no going off the path, and no major hills, mild to moderate hills all the way. So if you or someone you know is confined to a wheelchair or uses a scooter, now's your chance. Come out. I will give you fair warning, though. We set aside a few parking spots across the street for people with physical disabilities. They go quickly. You might want to find another way to get to the cemetery. That's true of everybody on Soul Crawl Night. We get hundreds of people showing up for that, and it's so much fun. Sacred Spaces and Storied Places, introductory tour at Laurel Hill West, also on October 28th from 10 until 11.30 with Linda Blowney. And then the 28th, Talking with the Dead, Spirits and Spiritualists at Laurel Hill East, from 1 until 3 with Pat Rose. That means if you really are in a cemetery mood on Saturday the 28th, you can go to a tour at West from 10 until 11.30, come over to East, go on a tour from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m., head down to Maniunk, get yourself a nice leisurely early dinner, grab a drink, and then head back for the Soul Crawl at 7 o'clock or so. A full day of Laurel Hill Cemetery. And there's one more on the 29th, the morning after the Soul Crawl. Sarah Hamill comes back to Laurel Hill East and does her tour Dearly Yet Oddly Departed. That's from 1 p.m. until 3 p.m. So like I say, this is a really full month of activities at Laurel Hill. LaurelHillPHL.com slash events. You can follow us on Facebook, you can follow us on Instagram, you can follow us on X if you're still a member of X. If you want more information about supporting the cemetery or becoming a member, because remember, you get a discount on all these tours if you're a member of the Friends of Laurel Hill. It's laurelhillphl.com support membership. Christmas is coming up. What a great stocking stuffer. Give somebody a membership in the Friends of Laurel Hill, and they can get discounts on all of the tours. Okay, let's get back to the podcast. You've probably heard the phrase Philadelphia lawyer. It used to describe an attorney who knew the most detailed and minute points of law or who was exceptionally competent. It was first used to describe Philadelphia-based colonial American lawyer Andrew Hamilton, not Alexander, but Andrew Hamilton, who in 1735 won a legal victory for New York printer and newspaper publisher John Peter Zenger. This decision helped to establish the simple principle that truth is a defense against an accusation of libel. 
Hamilton is buried in the churchyard at Christ Church on 2nd Street. The term Philadelphia lawyer appeared around 1788. That was 47 years after Hamilton's death. Other attorneys have been tabbed as Philadelphia lawyers. John Christian Bullitt, who's interred at Laurel Hill East, has his statue on display on the North Plaza of City Hall. He wrote the Bullitt Bill in 1885, which became the Philadelphia City Charter. He was a founder of the law firm Drinker, Biddle, and Wreath, which brings up Henry Sandwith Drinker, who joined the firm in 1904. He's interred at Laurel Hill West. He carried that moniker of Philadelphia lawyer in the early 20th century. I talked about him in All Bones Considered number 41. Today the term has taken on a more pejorative meaning. Someone who is slick and smooth with the legal system who stretches ethics and truth in ways that were never intended. George Sharswood was a lawyer who fit both definitions. In the early years of the country, becoming a lawyer was quite different from today. Most aspiring lawyers began their journey through an apprenticeship or a clerkship with an established lawyer to whom he paid a fee. And they were all men until the late 19th century. The apprentice studied law in the office of a lawyer, observed court sessions, and performed other routine tasks. In many cases, these tasks were nothing more than endless copying of legal documents for two or three years. There was another way to become a lawyer. Study standard treatises and engage in clerical duties, such as drawing up routine contracts and wills. This process was known as reading law. After completing training, a prospective lawyer had to pass an examination or undergo an interview administered by members who were already admitted to practice. These requirements varied from court to court and colony to colony. There was no specialization. A lawyer was a jack-of-all-trades in the legal profession. The origin of the term bar is from the barrier that divided a medieval European courtroom. In many countries that refer to the law traditions of Europe, the area in front of the barrier is restricted to participants in the trial. The judge or judges, other court officials, the jury, if there was one, the lawyers for each party, the parties to the case, and witnesses giving testimony. The area behind the bar is open to the public. In most courts, the bar is represented by a physical partition, a railing, or a barrier. And the term bar has gradually become accepted for the legal system as a whole. The first U.S. law school was established in 1779 at the College of William and Mary in Virginia. Harvard followed in 1817 and is the oldest continuously operating law school in the country. University of Virginia was next in 1819, then Yale in 1824. Well, what about the University of Pennsylvania? I mean, the Academy and College of Philadelphia had been started as a boys' school and men's college in Philadelphia in 1749 by a group of local notables that included Benjamin Franklin. It was initially a private secondary school. It occupied a former religious school building at the southwest corner of 4th and Arch Street. The College of Philadelphia was founded in 1755. 
when the Academy's charter was amended to allow the granting of advanced academic degrees. The Medical School of the College of Philadelphia, now the Perelman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, was founded in 1765. It was the first medical school in North America. And when the College of Philadelphia merged with the University of the State of Pennsylvania in 1791, it formed the University of Pennsylvania that we know now. But it surprised me to find out that Penn is not even the oldest law school in the Commonwealth. That honor goes to Dickinson School in Carlisle, namesake of the founding father and alma mater to Robert Greer which opened its law school in 1834. The University of Pennsylvania did not start its law school until 1850. That puts them only at number 17 on the list of oldest U.S. law schools. A Penn's law school can trace its origins to a series of lectures on law that were delivered in 1790 through 1792 by James Wilson, an inaugural member of the U.S. Supreme Court, and one of only six people who signed both the United States Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. Wilson had studied under another founding father, John Dickinson, the namesake of Dickinson College that I mentioned earlier. Penn started to offer a full-time program in law in 1850. It was under the leadership of the third professor of law at the law department of the University of Pennsylvania, George Sharswood. He was born in Philadelphia on 7 July 1810. The son of merchant George Sharswood and his wife Esther Dunn. His father died at age 22 before George was born, so he was brought up by his paternal grandfather, Captain James Sharswood. He entered the sophomore class of the College Department of the University of Pennsylvania at the age of 15, and he graduated in 1828 at the head of his class, and he delivered the Latin salutatory. Sharswood studied law in the offices of the legendary Joseph Reed Ingersoll, whom he later called my honored master. He recalled that Ingersoll had warned him, I had chosen a very laborious profession. The study of the law was no child's play, that there was no use beginning unless I was very much in earnest, that it would demand the exercise of every faculty I possessed to master it as a science and apply it as a practice. During his studies, Sharswood acquired a sufficient knowledge of French and Spanish to read those languages easily. After studying with Ingersoll, Sharswood was admitted to the Pennsylvania Bar on 5 September 1831 at age 21. Even after passing the bar, he devoted more time and energy to studying law than to active practice. He went into politics. He served two terms in the Pennsylvania State Legislature from 1837 to 38 and 1842 to 43. In 1845, Governor Francis Schunk nominated Sharswood to serve as an Associate Justice of the District Court of Pennsylvania, one of the original 13 district courts established in 1789. His reputation was such that his appointment was confirmed by unanimous vote of the Senate. 
and when he took his seat, he was only 35 years old. Three years later, in 1848, he was named as presiding judge. He continued as a member of that court until he was elected to the state Supreme Court in 1867. Sharswood's scholarship was so well respected that he was elected president of law at the University of Pennsylvania on 8 April 1850 and served for 18 years. Although courses in law had been taught at the university since its inception, there had been no formal department of law. He originated a broad two-year course of study embracing subjects such as international law, constitutional law, corporations, mercantile and real estate law, and jurisprudence. It was in 1851 that he was elected to the American Philosophical Society as member number 22. In 1852, the Faculty of Law was officially reestablished at the University of Pennsylvania, and the faculty expanded to three. Charleswood was made dean, as well as professor of the Institutes of Law, positions he held until he was named to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. In 1872, he was elected to the university's Board of Trustees and served until 1883. For some years, it was his custom to begin the academic year with an introductory lecture. And in 1870, he printed a small volume entitled Lectures Introductory to the Study of Law, which he dedicated to his friend, fellow lawyer George Washington Biddle. Some of the matter contained in these lectures was afterwards reproduced in the volume entitled Professional Ethics, which is still considered an essential text and frequently quoted in schools of law. Sharswood was elevated to the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in 1867. This precipitated his 1868 retirement from teaching. He became Chief Justice in 1872 and he retired in 1882 at the end of his term. One of the cases during his term was that of Miss Carolyn Carey Sylvester Burnham, a well-known suffragette and women's rights advocate. Burnham was a member of the Citizens Suffrage Association. She tried to vote in Philadelphia city and county elections on 10 October 1871. It did not go well. This was only one year after Pennsylvania ratified the 15th Amendment, which prohibited the federal government and each state from denying or abridging a citizen's right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or previous condition of servitude, end quote. The amendment made no mention of gender. Now, we remember this election today because by the time the polls closed, four black men in Philadelphia who tried to vote in the fourth ward were dead, including civil rights hero and baseball player Octavius Cato, whose majestic statue now stands on the south side of City Hall. Carrie Burnham's experience wasn't as violent in the 14th ward where she lived. She walked from her home at 1329 Vine Street to the establishment of Thomas Rafferty, at the northeast corner of Broad and Wood. There she presented her ballot to Lewis Looning, judge, and George Lewis and Joseph Houghton, election inspectors. These men refused Burnham's ballot. 
Now, the 15th Amendment was one of the so-called Reconstruction Amendments. The 14th Amendment, adopted in July 1868, is one of the most litigated parts of the Constitution and forms the basis for landmark Supreme Court decisions such as Brown v. Board of Education, 1954, Roe v. Wade, 1973, Bush v. Gore, 2000, Obergefell v. Hodges, 2015. This is the amendment that nullified, finally, the 1857 Dred Scott v. Sanford decision that I discussed earlier. There was nothing in the United States Constitution that should have prevented a woman from voting. The word male did not appear until the 14th Amendment was ratified, and it did so in relation to voting rights, linking the number of a state's representatives to the proportion of adult males who could vote. Women fighting for the vote in the 19th century pointed out that according to the 14th Amendment, all, quote, persons born or naturalized in the United States were citizens, end quote. Therefore, women were citizens. Starting in 1870, many women had been trying to vote, but they were rebuffed at the ballot box. Carrie Burnham, who'd already earned a medical degree from New York's Hygieia Therapeutic College, and had been teaching at a French school for young ladies on Filbert Street, decided to be Pennsylvania's test case. Shortly after Burnham came to Philadelphia in 1865, she began reading law with Damon Young Kilgore, a former Methodist minister who had abandoned a wife and four children in Wisconsin and become a lawyer, reformer, and a spiritualist in Philadelphia. He had started the first progressive Christian church, which was rumored to be a free love church. Soon, Burnham and Kilgore were scandalously living together. The same year that she tried to vote, Burnham sought and was denied admission to the University of Pennsylvania Law School. The same thing happened for 10 more years. Each year she applied, each year she was rejected. Carrie Burnham's logic was sound. Article 3 of the Pennsylvania Constitution of 1838 stated that, quote, in elections by the citizens, every white free man of the age of 21 years, having resided in the state one year and in the election district where he offers to vote 10 days immediately preceding such election, and within two years paid a state or county tax, which shall have been assessed at least 10 days before the election, shall enjoy the rights of the elector. Carey was 33 years old. In September 1871, she was assessed by canvassers for the 14th Ward as a resident, and two days later she paid her county taxes. She sued Looning, Lewis, and Houghton, and sought $1,000 in damages. The defense argued Burnham had no cause for suit as she was not a free man. This was starting to sound like the earlier federal Dred Scott decision, which declared that since Scott was not a citizen, he had no right to sue the government. And since Burnham had suffered no injury, she could collect no damages. When the Pennsylvania Supreme Court ruled on her case, 
George Sharswood delivered the opinion. He did not question that she was a citizen of the United States and entitled to all privileges of citizenship. So the questions were, was voting one of those privileges? And did the word free man in Article 3 of the Pennsylvania Constitution include women? If the answer to either question was yes, then Burnham had a right to vote. Sharswood answered both questions in the negative. The elective franchise was regulated by the 1838 state constitution, which had imposed many restrictions on voting, age, residency, payment of taxes. The only restrictions the federal government had placed on states in determining voter qualifications were enumerated in the 15th Amendment. So the question for Sharswood then was the meaning of the word free man. Was Carrie Burnham a free man? Looking at the use of the word in earlier versions of the voting clause and elsewhere in the 1838 Constitution, namely Article 6, Section 2 on the militia, Sharswood concluded that she was not. Quote, The free men of this commonwealth shall be armed, organized, and disciplined for its defense when and such manner as may be directed by law. Those who conscientiously scruple to bear arms shall not be compelled to do so, but shall pay an equivalent for personal service. End quote. So because Carrie Burnham was not required to bear arms, she was not entitled to vote. A year after Carrie's failed attempt to vote, the Pennsylvania legislature had a chance to right this injustice, but they blew it. In November of 1872, Pennsylvania delegates gathered in Harrisburg to revise the state's 1838 constitution. Only Pennsylvania men, however, were represented in this convention. Pennsylvania's women asked to be permitted to vote for delegates, but quoting Sharswood's opinion in the Burnham case, election officials denied their request and women were again denied the right to vote. After 10 years of lobbying, Carrie Burnham Kilgore finally became the first female student admitted to, ironically, the University of Pennsylvania Law School in 1881. She graduated in 1883, and she was admitted to practice before the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania in 1885, two years after Sharswood's death. In 1890, she was admitted to practice before the Supreme Court of the United States, but she could still not vote. On 24 June 1919, Pennsylvania became the seventh state to ratify the 19th Amendment, and Pennsylvania women voted for the first time on 2 November 1920. That's more than 45 years after Carrie Burnham Kilgore's first attempt to vote and Sharswood's ruling against her. It may have been the worst decision that Sharswood made in an otherwise long and distinguished career. In addition to his distinguished legal career, Sharswood was a great scholar of classical languages. He peppered his lectures with quotations in Latin and Greek. He frequently read and discussed the Greek New Testament and could also read the Old Testament in Hebrew. His maxim 
was multum sed nun multa. The quality with which a work is done, i.e. the muchness of it, is much more important than the sheer quantity of tasks a person completes. A strict constructionist, Charswood greatly admired the common law and the rule of stare decisis, the doctrine of precedence. A follower of Jefferson and Adam Smith, Charswood disliked government interference with personal liberty. Former Chief Justice George Charswood died at his home at 332 South 13th Street on 28 May 1883, less than five months after he stepped down from the Supreme Court. He was 73 years old. The newspapers of the day reported his gradual decline with bedside consultations from the distinguished University of Pennsylvania physicians, Dr. David Hayes Agnew, Laurel Hill West Ashland Section, and Dr. William Pepper, Laurel Hill East Section J, even on the day before he died. They determined that he developed a brain abscess and could not be saved. George Sharswood is buried in Section L, lots 501 to 503 at Laurel Hill East Cemetery. He's not far from the gatehouse and near Ridge Avenue. His impressive stone says, This monument, erected by members of the Philadelphia Bar, commemorates the genius and virtues of one distinguished as a legal scholar and professor of law, president judge of the district court, associate and chief justice of the Supreme Court, of Pennsylvania. In 2007, Penn Law established the Sharswood Fellowship, which allows Sharswood Fellows to enjoy faculty access to Penn Law services and events and hold academic standing comparable to that of visiting assistant professors. The George W. Sharswood School is a K-8 school located in the Whitman neighborhood of Philadelphia at 2300 South 2nd Street. It's not far from the Furnace High School where it feeds its students. The school building was designed by Henry de Courcy Richards and built in 1906 to 1908. It's a three-story, seven-bay brick building in the colonial revival style that was added to the National Register of Historic Places in 1988. The Sharswood section of Philadelphia encompasses the 43 acres of Girard College, and it's surrounded by Brewery Town, Fairmount, and Francisville. Plus, you can find his essay on ethics free online at Project Gutenberg. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania is, as the name suggests, the highest court in the Commonwealth. It is also the oldest appellate court in the United States, although Massachusetts may argue about that. The term appellate simply means that it is a court of law empowered to hear an appeal of a trial court or other lower tribunal. Much of the world uses a three-level system of courts. The trial court, which initially hears a case and reviews evidence and testimony to determine the facts of the case. Then there's at least one intermediate appellate court. Finally, there's the Supreme Court, or the Court of Last Resort, which primarily reviews the decisions of intermediate courts. Pennsylvania has two intermediate appellate courts. The Superior Court of Pennsylvania, which hears appeals in criminal and most civil cases from the Court of Common Pleas, 
and the Commonwealth Court of Pennsylvania, which has jurisdiction over administrative and civil public law. Pennsylvania's Supreme Court began in 1684 as the Provincial Court. That means it predates the United States Supreme Court by more than a hundred years. The court meets in Philadelphia, Pittsburgh, and Harrisburg. There are seven justices, each elected to a 10-year term, which can be extended by winning retention in another election. The justice with the longest continuous service automatically becomes the chief justice. And justices must step down at the end of the calendar year in which they reach the age of 75. The Supreme Court of Pennsylvania maintains a discretionary docket. That means it can choose which cases it accepts, with the exception of mandatory death penalty appeals and certain appeals from the original jurisdiction of the Commonwealth Court. The Supreme Court Chamber in Harrisburg is located on the fourth floor of the Capitol building. It's on the east side of the rotunda. It is rather small, 42 by 72 feet. It's smaller than the chambers for the House and the Senate. I talked about the Capitol building a little in two prior podcasts. I talked about the building itself in All Bones Considered number 49 when I talked about the architect Joseph Miller Houston and white-collar crime. I also mentioned the 16 murals in the chamber, which were painted by Violet Oakley between 1917 and 1927 in Biographical Bites from Bala, number 11, Henrietta Cousins and the Red Rose Girls. I did not mention that the stained glass in the courtroom dome was by English-born Alfred Godwin, who was interred in the Pencoid section of Laurel Hill West. James Tyndale Mitchell, who's interred at Laurel Hill East, worked his way up the judicial ladder. He served on the Philadelphia District Court from 1871 to 1875, the Pennsylvania Court of Common Pleas from 1875 to 1888, as an Associate Justice of the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania from 1889 to 1903, and as Chief Justice from 1903 to 1910. James Tyndale Mitchell was born in Belleville, Illinois in 1834. He was the son of Edward P. Mitchell and Elizabeth Tyndale, who had been married in Philadelphia, the home of the bride. His paternal grandfather, also named James Mitchell, had many years earlier moved from Roanoke, Virginia, to what was then the far distant western state of Illinois. He established himself in business with his son Edward as an associate. Edward and Elizabeth came back to Philadelphia in 1841, when James was seven years old. Robinson Tyndale, Elizabeth's father, was engaged as a wholesale and retail dealer in China and glass. He specialized in Canton and Nankin wares. When Robinson Tyndale died in 1842, James's father Edward entered co-partnership with his brother-in-law, the gallant Pennsylvania soldier Hector Tyndale, under the firm name of Tyndale and Mitchell. Hector Tyndale was not an abolitionist, but he's remembered today as the man who escorted John Brown's wife to visit her husband in jail and then recover Brown's body after his 1859 execution. Russ Dodge tells his story in the annual Juneteenth tour to set them free. During the Civil War, 
Hector Tyndale attained the rank of Brevet Major General. He was shot through the hip at the Battle of Antietam. Hector later was a member of the American Philosophical Society, and he's buried at Laurel Hill East in Section H when he died in 1880. Another of James's uncles, Sharon Tyndale, stayed in Illinois where he became Secretary of State, redesigned the Great Seal of the State of Illinois, and was assassinated outside his home in Springfield in 1871, a murder which has never been solved. Besides his business acumen, James's father, Edward, was a popular writer who made contributions to Knickerbocker magazine using the pen name of Ralph of Roanoke. He was intimate friends with author and publisher Joseph Clay Neal of Neal's Gazette, interred at Laurel Hill East P31. I talked about him in All Bones Considered Number 30, the Saturday Gazette. Their circle included George Rex Graham of Graham's Magazine, Laurel Hill East Section I, and Louis Antoine Godey, longtime editor of Godey's Ladies Book, Laurel Hill East, WXYZ Circle. James Tyndale Mitchell received his early education at the Zane Street Grammar School. In 1848, he was admitted to Central High School. He graduated four years later with a Bachelor of Arts degree. He entered the sophomore class at Harvard University and graduated fifth out of a class of 69 in July 1855. Among his classmates, the valedictorian and future Union General Francis C. Barlow, Alexander Agassiz, son of natural history scholar Louis Agassiz, Philip Brooks, who was later rector of the Church of the Holy Trinity on Rittenhouse Square, and the man who wrote the lyrics for O Little Town of Bethlehem. Thomas Lyman III, a close friend of General George Meade, and famed author and historian Charles Francis Adams, Jr., great-grandson of President John Adams. A few months after he graduated from Harvard, James Mitchell registered as a law student in the office of Philadelphian George Washington Biddle. He entered the University of Pennsylvania, and he studied under George Sharswood, he received his Bachelor of Laws degree in 1860. That's the same year he became a clerk to the well-known Philadelphia solicitor, Charles E. Lex, no relation, and he held that position for three years. He gave that role up when he became editor-in-chief of the American Law Register, a post he held for 25 years. From 1865 to 1873, he was also the librarian of the Law Association of Philadelphia. It was during this period that he wrote three treatises which became classics, Mitchell on Motions and Rules, Fidelity to Court and Client, and Hints on Practice and Appeals. In 1871, James was elected to the District Court of Philadelphia. When the District Court was abolished under the new Constitution of 1873, it was Mitchell's job to deliver an address at its final adjournment in January 1875. James Tyndale Mitchell now became a member of the Court of Common Pleas of Philadelphia County, and he sat there for 13 years until 1888. Mitchell was remembered for his clear charges to juries. Strong voice, simple language, orderly arrangement, a fair balance in summing up conflicting evidence. 
his statements of the law free from subtle distinctions. In other words, he was an ideal judge. He was respected by all in the profession and the civilians who encountered him. At the general election of 6 November 1888, Judge James T. Mitchell was elected as an Associate Justice of the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court. Over his 21 years on the court, he participated in the decision of 11,580 cases. He delivered opinions in 981 cases, of which 34 were written dissents, and he dissented in 108 cases without opinions. In other words, during his 21 years on the Supreme Court, he averaged 48 written opinions per year. He also served as the editor of the American Law Register. He was a co-founder of Weekly Notes of Cases in 1874. He served as an overseer of Harvard University from 1905 to 1912. He was senior vice president of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania from 1896 to 1915. He was elected as a member of the American Philosophical Society in 1890, and he was a member of the Union League the Military Order of the Loyal Legion of the United States, Mollus, the Sons of the Revolution, and the Society of Cincinnati. His life was not all law, although it sounds like it. As a hobby, he collected autographs and engraved portraits, almost obsessively, it seems. In 1894, he wrote a note to rare book dealer Stanislaus Stan Henkels. Dear Sir, I have concluded to send you all my autographs just as they are. I've been trying for a long while to get time to arrange them, but my portrait collection has reached such size and interest that it takes all the leisure I can command, and the autographs will have to stand out of the way. This autograph collection is amazing. It includes such historical luminaries as Chief Justices John Jay, John Marshall, Salmon P. Chase, and Roger Tawney, signers of the Declaration of Independence and Constitution, several dozen members of the Continental Congress, Revolutionary War officers, including Aaron Burr, authors, including Elizabeth Blackwell, Henry Ward Beecher, Horace Greeley, Sarah Josepha Hale, Francis Scott Key, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and other familiar names like Edwin Forrest, Richard Rush, Caesar Rodney, Charles Guiteau, Dolly Madison, Lucretia Mott, Lord Nelson, Horace Mann, Jefferson Davis, nearly 1,500 lots from a man who apparently asked everyone he ever met for an autograph. I could not determine how much money he got for this collection. His portrait collection was also impressive, a huge collection of lithographs of people from American history, including what at that time was the largest collection of portraits of U.S. presidents ever gathered by one man. In May 1907, he sold these at the book auction rooms of Davis and Harvey at 1112 Walnut Street. This collection consisted of more than a thousand prints, and it was advertised as, quote, the unequaled collection of engraved portraits of the presidents of the United States belonging to Honorable James T. Mitchell, Chief Justice of Pennsylvania, embracing many rare portraits of George Washington, 
the unique collection of portraits of Thomas Jefferson, John Adams, James Madison, and Andrew Jackson, and the largest and most important collection of Abraham Lincoln. I could also not find an estimate for how much he earned from selling this collection. Mitchell lived at 1723 Chestnut Street. He never married. He stepped down from his role on the Supreme Court in 1909, and then he served as a prothonotary until his death in 1950. Prothonotary is an administrative officer who serves as chief administrative officer of the court. James Tyndale Mitchell died of uremia at age 80. As I mentioned before, he never married, he never had children. He's buried with his mother and father in one of the terrace plots of Section S at Laurel Hill East. And despite his outstanding reputation as a fair and honest man of the law, he is little remembered today. My fourth Supreme Court judge is someone I mentioned in an earlier podcast. Back in All Bones Considered Number 9, I talked about two United States Attorneys General at Laurel Hill East and seven men who served as Commonwealth Attorney Generals. William Irwin Schaefer served briefly as Attorney General for less than two years, between 1919 and 1920, and then he was elected to the Supreme Court. Schaefer, that's spelled S-C-H-A-F-F-E-R, which is one of about seven different ways to spell that last name, was born in Germantown to George A. and Mary Henrietta Erwin Schaefer. His paternal grandfather, George Schaefer, was a native of Germany, who came to Philadelphia in 1830 and was in the wholesale dry goods business. Grandfather Schaefer died in 1870 when William was a toddler. William's father, George, was also born in Germantown and served for several years as general baggage agent for the Erie Railroad before he died in 1887 at age 42. His wife was a native of Lewistown, Pennsylvania, and her father, William H. Irwin, had served as adjutant general of Pennsylvania from 1848 to 1852. William was raised in Chester, Pennsylvania, now, oddly, Chester, Pennsylvania is not in Chester County. It's next door in Delaware County. After a public school education, he became office boy for the Honorable O.B. Dickinson, United States District Judge for the Eastern District of Pennsylvania. He read law with Honorable William B. Brumall, one of the judges of the Court of Common Pleas of Delaware County, and was admitted to the bar on his 21st birthday in 1888. While practicing as a private lawyer, Schaefer defended three prominent men accused of arson in the 1890 Chester Firebug cases. Two of the defendants were direct descendants of signers of the Declaration of Independence. They were all acquitted. Schaefer was elected district attorney for Delaware County and served from 1 January 1894 to 1 January 1900. During those six years, he tried 4,000 criminal cases. There was no assistant district attorney. He argued all the cases on his own, sometimes several, in the same day. His very first case was the infamous Shortledge shooting. On New Year's Eve of 1893, Harvard graduate Professor Swithin C. Shortledge, principal of Shortledge Media Academy, 
shot his wife in the head four times while they were out for a walk. The previously widowed 56-year-old academic with five children and his 34-year-old wife had been married for less than six weeks. No one witnessed the shooting, but the sound of gunshots brought out curious neighbors who found Shortridge cradling his wife's bloody head in his arms and shrieking, Come back, Marie! Come back to me! When he was jailed, Shortridge had to be restrained to prevent him from harming himself by banging his head into the bars of his cell. He was babbling. Did I do it? What did I do? What do why did I do it? What have I done? He kept calling for his wife. Now, as prosecutor, Schaefer did his best to show Shortledge's guilt on the pretense that he was trying to collect money from a life insurance policy. Among his expert witnesses was the acknowledged professional in neurologic and mental disease, Francis X. Durkham, who's interred at Laurel Hill West, and whom I talked about in Biographical Bites from Bala, number seven. Durkham is the Philadelphia physician who was consulted when President Woodrow Wilson had his massive stroke in 1919. Durkham felt that Shortledge had been sane and understood what he was doing when he killed his wife. But the defense satisfactorily proved to the jury that Shortledge was affected by an attack of influenza, or the grip, which had rendered him unstable, and that killing his wife was done during a period of temporary insanity. After the short deliberation, and despite the sound case presented by Schaefer, the jury found Professor Shortledge not guilty by reason of insanity. This story headlined newspapers for many days, both at the time of the killing and during the trial. Later, Schaefer was counsel for the defendant in the infamous Bullitt Lunacy case in 1911. John Christian Bullitt, Jr., M.D., was the son of the man who wrote the Philadelphia Charter, John Christian Bullitt. I mentioned him earlier in the podcast. His statue is outside of City Hall, and he's buried at Laurel Hill East. Born in 1872, Jr. went to the University of Pennsylvania and became a doctor, but he lived off of his family's money. In the 1910 census, he was a physician and a divorced boarder living in Delaware County. In 1911, at age 39, he announced his engagement to 18-year-old Edna Deaver, the daughter of his caretaker. This caused three of his siblings to file an injunction and petition that he be found insane. But another three or four siblings spoke in his defense. There were actually 11 bullet siblings. John Sr. had died in 1902, and Jr.'s share of his father's estate was said to be about $300,000, but one of his brothers was jealous. Schaefer defended Bullitt Jr., and the jury found that he was, quote, not a lunatic, end quote. Within two hours of the verdict in his favor, Dr. John C. Bullitt Jr. married his 18-year-old fiancée on 14 February 1911. Valentine's Day. The service was performed by one of his supportive brothers, the Reverend James Bullitt. This story also occupied the headlines for many days. Schaefer was appointed Attorney General by Governor William Cameron Spruill in 1919, but he served less than two years before he was assigned to fill a slot 
on the Supreme Court, and then he was voted into that position. He served two 10-year terms before gaining the seniority necessary to become Chief Justice for three years. He stepped down in 1943 after reaching the mandatory retirement age of 75. While he was serving on the Supreme Court, Schaefer wrote the majority decision that upheld the so-called Blue Laws, which prevented baseball from being played on Sundays in Philadelphia. As early as 1911, Philadelphia Athletics manager Connie Mack wanted the Athletics to play on Sunday. They were not a wealthy baseball club, and the Athletics vice president, John Scheib, who's interred with his father, Benjamin Franklin Scheib, at Laurel Hill West, estimated the team could make $20,000 for each Sunday game that they played in Philadelphia. Mack explained that the Athletics cannot meet our payrolls playing on 77 weekdays at home. Many Pennsylvania politicians and religious groups opposed Scheib and Mack's effort for Sunday baseball, claiming that playing on that day was a breach of peace, and that the games would be a disturbance to persons in that neighborhood desirous of preserving the peace and quiet of Sunday, so that they may, in such peace and quiet, pursue their religious worship and meditation. Unfortunately for the Athletics, Philadelphia's other baseball team, the Phillies, took no public position on the subject and actually undermined the Athletics' case. In 1917, the New York Giants and Cincinnati Reds played the first Sunday game ever at the Polo Grounds, New York's home field. It was a benefit game held during the First World War to assist dependents of a military regiment. However, after the game, both managers, John McGraw and Christy Mathewson, were arrested for violating the New York Blue Laws. Judge Francis Xavier McQuaid found them not guilty and commended them for their patriotic motives. The following year, Sunday baseball was legalized in Cleveland, Washington, D.C., and Detroit. One year after that, New York legalized baseball games on Sunday, and baseball teams that played in New York, the Giants, the Yankees, and the Dodgers, were allowed to have home games on Sunday. In 1926, Philadelphia was selected to host the Sesquicentennial Exposition to celebrate the 150th anniversary of American independence. The exposition was running a deficit, so the board of directors voted to open on Sundays and charge an admission fee. A few days later, the Athletics announced that they would play a game on Sunday, 22 August 1926 against the Chicago White Sox. Officials for the athletics felt there was no difference between charging people admission for exposition amusements on Sunday and charging a fee for a baseball game. Philadelphia Mayor W. Freeland Kendrick objected to the athletics' decision and announced that he would use the police to keep Scheib Park closed. The athletics went to court to request that Kendrick's decision be overturned. Judge Frank Smith granted the A's request and ruled on Saturday, 21 August 1926, that those seeking to prohibit Sunday baseball could do so if, quote, their right to quiet and undisturbed religious worship is encroached upon as a result of the game, unquote. Smith's ruling also declared that to prove the game had created a breach of peace, 
the game first had to be played. So the earliest legal action that could take place would be on the following Monday. More than 12,000 spectators attended the Sunday game, and the Athletics defeated the White Sox 3-2. During the game, Reverend William B. Forney drove around the park multiple times, said that he was ashamed of such an exhibition could be held on the Sabbath, and he called the cheers from the crowd a disgusting noise. The city of Philadelphia took the case to Dauphin County Court, where the court decided the baseball being played on Sunday was unlawful, quote, worldly employment, end quote. The athletics had announced they would take their case to the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Schaefer wrote the majority opinion in September 1927, and by a vote of 7-2, to two, Sunday baseball was declared both unholy and worldly employment. Schaefer also threatened the athletics, saying that if they continued to play on Sunday, their club corporation franchise would be revoked. After this ruling, athletics attorneys announced that although the athletics were going to drop their appeal, they did not plan on giving up. It took six more years, but in 1933, 22 years after Connie Mack first proposed Sunday games, the House and Senate of Pennsylvania finally passed a bill that allowed local jurisdictions to vote on whether Sunday sports would be legalized in their area. And the 1794 Blue Laws started to crumble. The push came not from baseball, but from Burt Bell, who was owner of the new NFL franchise, which he'd called the Eagles. He had lobbied heavily for this law for obvious reasons, because other NFL teams played their games on Sunday. When Philadelphians voted on their proposal, they easily won the right to play sports on Sunday. Despite continued loosening of the blue laws through the years, including recent changes like grocery stores allowed to sell beer and wine and state liquor stores open on Sundays, some of these blue laws still stand. For instance, did you know that car dealerships are closed on Sundays because of the blue laws? And all hunting is prohibited except foxes, crows, and coyotes. Now, even with his years of experience and the general respect of all who knew him or argued before him, Schaefer got into hot water in May 1933 when his name was found on a list of preferred purchasers of J.P. Morgan and Company stock. Governor Gifford Pinchot called on Justices Schaefer and John W. Kephart to resign. Pinchot said, If I had the power, I would remove them at once. The people of Pennsylvania are entitled to courts that are wholly free from the suspicion of secret relations with public utilities, public utility bankers, or the high priests of concentrated wealth. Judges who take favors from interests which are certain to have cases before them have utterly disqualified themselves. There is but one proper step for them to take, and that is to resign. Remember, this was 90 years ago. Both men had been permitted to purchase stock in Allegheny Corporation at $20 per share when it was selling at $35 or more per share in the open market. Schaefer and Kephart both contended that their stock purchases were entirely above-board transactions, and both 
refused to resign. No attempt was made to impeach the justices. After Schaefer retired from the court, he returned to private practice with offices in the Girard Trust Building, and he lived in Haverford. He stayed active in various social organizations, including the Five O'Clock Club, which I realize probably deserves a podcast by itself. During his final days, he moved to Bel Air, Florida. He was 85 years old when he died there on 15 January 1953. And a few days later, he was interred in the Hanover section at Laurel Hill West. October edition of Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, I will tell you of a man with a passion for free education. William Wagner earned his fortune working for Stephen Girard, and he became a gentleman scientist. He decided to share this thirst for learning with whomever was interested, and he established the Wagner Institute of Science in North Philadelphia. The organization continues Wagner's philosophy to this day with its free museum and free lectures on various scientific topics. The November episode of All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, is about the Sun Oil Company and Joseph Newton Pugh and his family. Learn about the establishment of oil dynasties in the United States and how the Pugh family used its great wealth to establish the Pew Center for Arts and Heritage, the Pew Charitable Trusts, and the Pew Research Center. In addition to the Pews, you'll learn about William Warden, Samuel Eckert, William Elkins, and other Philadelphians in the oil business. Laurel Hill East is located at 3822 Ridge Avenue. It's in the East Falls section of Philadelphia, an easy walk from the bus stop at Ridge and Allegheny for SEPTA buses R1 and 61. Admission is free, as is parking in the lot across the street, although spaces are very limited. There's an app you can download for a self-guided tour through its 78 acres. Laurel Hill West is at 225 Belmont Avenue in Bella Kinwood, with parking at the main entrance and at the Bell Tower. Your best bet for public transportation is to take the SEPTA Regional Rail to Maniunk or one of the many buses to the Wissahickon Transfer Center on Ridge Avenue. Then cross the Schuylkill River on the Pencoid Pedestrian Bridge 
and come up Writer's Ferry Road to the entrance near the Pet Cemetery. If you download the audios I've done for self-guided tours, they will lead you to a 40 to 45 minute audio tour that talks about people interred along the route through the cemetery. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West are currently open from 7 a.m. to 7 p.m. We welcome dog walkers. As long as you clean up after yourself, please keep your dog on a lead. Bike riders, photographers, painters, bird watchers, nature buffs, tree and plant lovers, skateboarders, strollers, both the two-footed and four-wheel variety, all are welcome. Both Laurel Hill East and Laurel Hill West give frequent historic tours, as I mentioned in the middle of this podcast. You can find out more at laurelhillphl.com slash events slash calendar. If you follow us on Instagram and Facebook, you'll get a daily reminder of some of our inhabitants and activities. You can also follow All Bones Considered on Instagram and Facebook. And once you've fallen in love with these hotspots, become a friend of Laurel Hill. You'll have the opportunity for members-only special tours conducted each year, including some inside the mausoleum visits, plus discounts on tours and discounts on the gift shop. They may be cemeteries, but they are a couple of the liveliest spots in town. The key to finding the gift shop online, by the way, click on support and then find the gift shop in the left-hand column. Our theme song, The Name Is At Peace, was written and performed by local artist James Harrow. All Bones Considered, Laurel Hill Stories, and Biographical Bites from Bala, Laurel Hill West Stories, are researched, written, narrated, and produced by me, Joe Lex, retired professor of emergency medicine from Temple University. You can reach me through my email, joe at joelex.net. Remember to keep body and soul together until next time on All Bones Considered Laurel Hill Stories, where the plot thickens. Stick around to hear the references that I used for this podcast. And until the next time we meet, stay safe, stay well. For Robert Greer, a lot of the research I did was on the Dred Scott decision. A couple of references for that. The Dred Scott decision, background and implications, author Joel E. Cohen, source Negro History Bulletin, January 1963, volume 26, number 4. Was the Dred Scott case valid? The author is Walter Ehrlich. That's from the Journal of American History, September 1968, Volume 55, Number 2. The Origins of the Dred Scott Case, also by Walter Ehrlich. Also from the Journal of Negro History, April 1974, Volume 59, Number 2. What the Court Decided in Dred Scott v. Sandford. John S. Vishnesky III is the author of that. It's in the American Journal of Legal History, October 1988, Volume 32, Number 4. The Fugitive Slave Clause in the Antebellum Constitution by Robert Baker. That's from Law and History Review, November 2012, Volume 30, Number 4. Finally, Presidents, Senates, and Failed Supreme Court Nominations by Keith E. Whittington, The Supreme Court Review, 
volume 2006, number 1, pages 401 to 438. There were several articles on George Sharswood that I found useful. First of all, Sharswood's Professional Ethics, that's from the American Law Register, 1852 to 1891, volume 3, number 4, pages 193 to 204. A Case for a Philadelphia Lawyer by Robert von Moschzicker from the American Bar Association Journal, volume 10, number 12, from December 1924. Judge Sharswood by George W. Wickersham. It's from the University of Pennsylvania Law Review and American Law Register, volume 62, number 8, from June 1914. The Legal Education of George Sharswood, 1810-1883, an excerpt from his manuscript Family Memoranda in the Hampton L. Carson Collection of the Free Library of Philadelphia. That is by Howell J. Heaney. It's from the American Journal of Legal History, Volume 2, Number 3, July 1958, pages 259 to 266. George Sharswood, Professor of Law. Author is Edwin R. Keady, from the University of Pennsylvania Law Review, April 1950, Volume 98, Number 5, pages 685 to 694. The Woman's Rights Movement in Pennsylvania, 1848 to 1873, author Ira V. Brown. From Pennsylvania History, a Journal of Mid-Atlantic Studies, April 1965, volume 32, number 2, pages 153 to 165. And A Citizen's Not a Woman's Right, Carrie Burnham, versus the Pennsylvania Supreme Court. Author is Tamara, maybe Tamara, I don't know how the person pronounces their name. Uh, last name Gaskell, G-A-S-K-E-L-L. That's from Pennsylvania Legacies, Volume 8, Number 2, November 2008, pages 20 to 27. For James Tyndale Mitchell, I got a lot of information out of the Pennsylvania Magazine of History and Biography, Volume 40. It's a publication fund of the Historical Society of Pennsylvania, dated 1916. There were also several newspaper articles that I find useful. And the catalog, of course, for the autograph collection that he sold toward the end of his life. Finally, on William Schaefer. Most of the material came from contemporary newspaper cases that Schaefer was involved in. The Shortlidge case in 1893-94, the Bullet Lunacy case, as it was literally called in the press, in 1911, and then the J.P. Morgan scandal in 1933. Again, thank you for listening. Hope to see you around the cemetery. Stay safe, stay well.